who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. Rogues of the Black Fury, episode 25. Rogues of the Black Fury, a novel, written and produced by Travis Heerman. This novel contains violence, adult language, and mature situations. Listener discretion is advised. For more information, please visit travisheerman.com rogues. Special guest performer, Mary Rogers. For more information about Mary, check out the Rogues of the Black Fury homepage. Chapter 40 What the hell is taking them so long, Sasha fumed, pacing the common room of the inn. Rusk sat on a stool near a window, occasionally peeking out at the street. I gave him an hour. We will leave on schedule. No matter where he sat or how he positioned himself, he always gave the impression of immovability. When he was moving, he moved like an avalanche, with fury and swiftness. He was right. If Javan and the others had been caught, they were on their own. The Furies could not afford to risk their mission for three cod suckers. The mission would continue without them, even if one of them was the scion of House Wallstone. All of them knew it. They were too few to attempt a second rescue. Javan and the others had known it before they stepped outside the door. The hard reality made perfect sense to her. But that did not mean that her heart did not hurt because of it. Damn that Wallstone. Was he stupid enough to get himself lost? This was exactly what she had tried so hard to guard herself against, but nevertheless it was happening. She could not just leave him out there without knowing, without trying. I want to go look for them, she said. Rusk's eyes turned toward her, steady and dark. She crossed her arms and met his gaze. The marketplace is a short walk. I'll be back in ten minutes. If I'm not, then I'll find you tonight. Across the room, the innkeeper stood behind the bar, pretending not to watch them and listen as he cleaned teacups. Rusk said nothing for a long moment. She could see the wheels of possibility churning in his head. His dark eyes twitched and he nodded once. You have ten minutes. After that, we're packing up. Make sure they don't have their cods stuck in a knot hole. He glanced outside again. Was that concern in his voice? 
She smoothed her attire, fashioned like those of a Gofrini noblewoman, with a tight bodice, a high lacy neck, and broad layered hoop skirts. She had chosen a pale lavender for the color, pretty and womanly, but not flashy. Her dark-dyed hair was contained in a fine golden net woven with mother-of-pearl beads. It was a restrictive disguise, but she had specially modified it so that it was an easy discard. With a yank of a couple of strings, the clumsy skirts and restrictive bodice fell away and made the daggers and miniature pistol strapped to her thighs more accessible. She kept another small knife in a slim sheath up her left sleeve. She left the inn and took off down a narrow street at a brisk walk in the direction of the marketplace. A couple of minutes later, she could see ahead that the street opened into a broad square and the stalls of street vendors arranged around the outside and in rows through the center. She could hear a large crowd of people in the distance. Were their voices raised in anger? She slowed her pace and approached the marketplace, hugging close to one side of the street. The square was almost deserted. Most of the stalls stood vacant. Where had everyone gone? After the acolytes at the safe house had cleaned and dressed his wound, Adon grew restless. The poultices and healing teas that they prepared for him soothed away most of the pain. News of Zamish Am Fathad's disappearance must be spreading throughout the city like a brush fire. The master would want to know what the people were saying. Rumors were an invaluable source of information. Adon wanted to see the results of his work firsthand. He dressed himself in traditional farthy robes, dyed his hair black, and darkened his skin, and set out into the streets. The safe house was near one of the largest marketplaces in Alcott. The money changer found it necessary and profitable to set up shop near the marketplace, but the marketplace was favored by the peasants of the area, and so was located in a poor, run-down section of the city. An ancient canal divided the crafter's quarter from the neighboring slum and as Adon crossed the canal bridge, he could already hear gangs of voices moving through the streets. A few minutes later found him walking through a nearly deserted marketplace. He approached a pock-faced, lumpy woman working at a fruit stand. Madam, forgive my rudeness, but where is everyone? Have you not heard the news? Her eyes were wide and fearful. No, madam, what news? Some Cuscan spies kidnapped His Holiness's son this morning. Right from Mumashoth's shrine they did. Some soldiers came and told us what happened. If you see any foreigners, report them to the city guard. So where is everyone? Most everyone went off to search for the spies. They were here. What do you mean? They were here in this market, two or three of them, and they had a farthy traitor with them. They ran away off that direction, and everyone ran after them. She pointed in the direction from which he had come. What did they look like? I don't know. They didn't look like farthy, they didn't. They were dressed like some kind of free city's men. Thank you, madam. You're very kind. How much for a peach? Ten dough. Ten? Madam, that is an exorbitant price. Prices just went up an hour ago. But I only have three dough. Three? I cannot grow them for three. The haggling continued until finally they settled upon five copper dough, which was still five times what a peach should have cost. He suspected that this morning's events had spooked all the street sellers. As he strolled through the marketplace, munching on his sweet, juicy peach, 
he spied a Goffrini woman of some means hovering tentatively at the square's edge. Her face was impassive, but Adon could sense her nervousness from her stance and clasped hands. Her eyes scanned the square as if she were looking for something, or someone. Why would a wealthy Goffrini woman have come from that direction, from deeper within the peasant quarter? That was a rough neighborhood for a woman of her means to be walking alone. Sasha's eyes searched the marketplace for any sign of Javan and the others. A chill tingled up her spine. Something was very wrong. Slowly, nonchalantly, she turned and walked away from the marketplace, back toward the inn. Her mind spun in circles. Where had they gone? Where were all the market's patrons and vendors? A goblet of sick black dread began to form in her belly and writhe around her heart. She eased her sleeve dagger loose in its sheath. With a flex of her wrist, it would slide into her palm. The inn was only a minute or two away. She quickened her pace. So difficult to appear as if nothing was wrong, even though her heart threatened to burst out of her chest in a wet, sloppy mess. A distinctive metallic click sounded from behind her, and a man's voice spoke in Cuskish. Halt, my lady. I believe we need to have a word. She halted in mid-stride and slowly turned around, letting the dagger slide into her palm. The massive black cavern of the pistol barrel yawned before her face, and the nondescript man behind it wore farthy clothing, yet he had spoken it in perfect cuskish, with a bit of a Norgard accent. "'Who are you?' she said, assuming an attitude of frightened but affronted nobility. "'What do you want?' "'Was that a blue dragon pistol in his hand?' "'The question is, my lady, who are you? You're no more Gofrini than I am. Drop the dagger.' "'A blue dragon pistol.' A Norgard accent. The realization struck her like a lightning bolt. So was it you who kidnapped Bella Wallstone? The man blinked. In that moment she knew. His voice hardened and deepened. Drop that dagger, woman, or I'll empty your brains onto the street. She dropped the dagger onto the hard-packed earth. How many more weapons do you have under that costume, he said. She smiled grimly and cupped her breasts with her hands. Only these... "'Infidel whore!' he snarled. "'She snatched the ends of the strings "'that would release her hoop-skirt and pulled. "'The hoop-skirt fell about her ankles. "'His pistol chuffed with white smoke "'as the flint shard and the hammer struck the steel frizzen. "'She dropped to the ground. "'The pistol thundered and the massive ball hissed above her head. "'She snatched out the miniature pistol holstered at her thigh, "'cocked and fired in one smooth motion. "'The man flinched, and she peered through the twin clouds "'of smoke hanging between them. "'But he did not fall.' Had she missed? As fast as a striking serpent, he threw his pistol at her. The heavy silver-chased butt of the grip slammed squarely onto her forehead. Stars in pain exploded in her eyes. Javin said, Were those gunshots? Maggot sat nearest the canal opening. Aye, two of them. Not far the arquebuses, though. Probably pistols. One a heavy pistol, one light. Maybe a pocket pistol. You could tell all that? Tonin said. I'm a fucking cannoneer, remember? You want me to tell you the powder charge? A firefight would spell their doom. 
Not even Rusk and the Black Furies could withstand an entire city bent on their destruction. The three waited in silence. No more gunshots came. What do we do? Tonin said. Javin said, We wait for nightfall. As the day dragged on, Javin felt his body soaking up the stench of the sewer like a sponge. The hours passed, and surges of activity came and went outside their cramped refuge. Some of them sounded dreadfully close. The snort of collades, the jangle of armor and weapons, throngs of angry or worried voices. The sounds echoed in the sewer pipe with great clarity so that they could listen to the passing conversations. But they knew that those echoes went both ways. Their voices could just as easily betray their hiding place. Only when it was silent outside would Tone whisper what he had heard. They're turning the entire city upside down, and they're rounding up all foreigners. The pieces of stories I hear are getting wilder and wilder. I doubt that your father has any wizards and demons in his employ. Javin smiled and shook his head. The son of the priest King of Alcott was captured this morning from a holy shrine in broad daylight. By Cuskins, they claim. Several of his bodyguards were killed. Does any of this begin to sound familiar? Aye, Javin said, remembering the chaos that befell Norgard after Bella's abduction. Tonin nodded. But why would the Absatha do this to their own people? I can see them acting against Cuska. Perhaps they were unhappy with the end of the war. Perhaps that's just it. Perhaps they do not like that the priest kings agreed to a ceasefire. Three of the great houses, Macklin, Farron, and Kerrigan, resisted my father's call for a ceasefire. There was too much blood in the air for them to stand down easily. Perhaps the Absatha are manipulating both sides. But the priest kings rule with holy scripture in one hand and sword in the other. They control all aspects of life, especially religious life. You said before that the Absothans' laws and rules were so strict and harsh that your mother left Almithra. Perhaps they wished to impose more of their own brand of religious law upon all of Fartha. Perhaps. Maggot sneered. Oh, you two and your fucking perhapses. You sound like a couple of nattering fucking women. Perhaps you could speak louder, Maggot, Tonin said, if you're trying to draw someone's attention. Eat shit, half-breed. Here's a nice piece, Maggot growled and turned away again. The hours passed with little more discussion, and as the air warmed with the day, it brought fresh pungency from the water in which they sat. Javin many times considered covering his mouth and nose with something, but everything he had reeked. A man could go mad from such a persistent and pervasive stench. He tried to sleep to pass the time, but the cramped confines of the sewer tunnel would not allow him any comfort. His muscles cramped and ached. Thankfully, the stench quashed any thought or impulse of hunger. Shadows slid across the water's surface outside their hiding place as the sun tracked across the sky and edged toward night, the night that would protect them from murderous eyes. In quiet intervals, Javin and Tonin whispered plans for regrouping with the Furies. The boss would not waste time and increase risk by sending a search party for them. He would continue the mission. Tonight, the rest of the Furies would be looking for a way into the high temple of Ibsatha. As the shadows lengthened and the light dimmed, they restrained their desperation for extricating themselves from the sewer until the light disappeared and the silence of night descended. Then they slipped from the sewer pipe into the canal.
Chapter 41 Sasha woke to a splitting pain in her head. Something had pasted her left eye shut, and her forehead felt as if it had a bump at the size of a melon. There was a rumbling, trundling sound, and she was moving. She was in the back of a wagon, covered by heavy cloth. A foul-tasting cloth stuffed her mouth, tied with a gag, and the air under the cover was stifling in the heat of the day. She took a deep breath and tried to clear her head, blinking her right eye and trying to look around. She tried to move, and found that her feet were bound and tied to her hands behind her, arching her back like a bow. She could not feel her hands, and her feet prickled with painful pins and needles. She listened to the sounds of the city outside, which eventually diminished, until a massive gate creaked open before the wagon, words were exchanged between the driver and the others, and the gates closed behind the wagon again. The cords cut into her wrists, and dredged up a memory of one of her old patrons, a wealthy, twisted old man, who'd like to tie her up before she pleasured him. He considered it quite an art form, the meticulous knots and intricate patterns across her body, and he savored the helplessness of the women who serviced him. Of course, Madame Malia had allowed all of this for an extra fee. Sasha had acquiesced, of course. In that time, she'd had little will of her own. Receiving the official parcel containing Verlan's death notice, a handful of bereavement money, and his loyal service medal had shattered her will into tiny pieces. Those meager few gold suns had not lasted long, when all she could think about was drinking the pain away. She had no one left. Her two brothers were killed in battle. Her father had been killed on the lines ten years previously. After Sasha had married Verlan, she watched her mother sicken and die, as if seeing her daughter married was one last painful duty a mother must discharge. What did pretty young war widows do without a husband or family to support them? They went to where the silver was, to the brothels and comfort girl camps. Sasha had been fortunate in that respect. Her natural grace and lithe physique caught the eye of Madame Malia, a famous and wealthy courtesan. The silver orchid was a different kind of establishment. Madame Malia's girls did not simply bed long lines of men for money like the army camp girls. She taught her girls to entertain, to delight, to give more than carnal pleasure. She taught them to read and to dance and to sing, how to walk, speak, and move. Only the wealthiest and most influential could afford Madame Malia's house of delights. Javin Wallstone had asked her when she became hard. It was during that time, as she lay with rich men and thought only of her husband, a bleak, desperate, despairing, faded time, and thank the gods she remembered so little of it. Matamalia had been as hard and sharp as flint. She had taught Sasha the discipline of physical perfection. She had been the harshest teacher Sasha could have imagined, demanding, cruel, spiteful, haughty, but in spite of that she looked out for her girls. No one could mistreat her girls except her. In a way, Matamalia had prepared Sasha perfectly for the day when she met Rusk. Rusk had reeled into the silver orchid, fresh from a completed mission and drunk as a sailor, carrying a bag full of suns in one hand and a bottle of Cardathian red in the other. He and Madame Malia were apparently old acquaintances, and Rusk wanted a woman to dance for him. 
generous, as always with her favored patrons, Madame Malia had given him four, and one of them was Sasha. As she lay there now in the back of the wagon with her hands tied so tightly on the way to her death, she remembered how she had danced. She and the three other girls had danced for him, wild, sensuous, wanton dances, and he had not taken his eyes off Sasha, not for a moment. Before the dance was over, she was certain he would want to take her to bed. There was lust in his eyes, to be sure, but something else as well, something she'd not seen before. An appreciation, an appraisal, a calculation. She had been so surprised when he did not take her, and perhaps even a little hurt. Some of the girls had more beauty in their features, but she was the far superior dancer. Perhaps her face was not beautiful enough. Perhaps she was too thin. Perhaps her breasts were too small. But with his eyes locked onto hers, he took all three of the other girls away together and bedded them all. Hours later, when he was finished with them, he had Sasha brought before him, and he offered her a chance for a new life. In that moment, she had sensed the opportunity to make a new life on her own terms. When she had made it clear that she would undertake no half-measures, she and Rusk came to an agreement. Rusk had taught her how to live again. And now she rode to her death in the back of this wagon without a single regret. She was not a courtesan, or a whore, or the young wife of a doomed soldier. She was a black fury. How surprised Verlon would be to see her now. Proud, perhaps. Her years with Madamalia would have caused him such pain and shame that she did not like to think about that. But she had lived through it, in spite of everything and all the times she had considered leaving this life. She had lived. He watched her from the halls of valor, and that he had forgiven her the things she had had to do to live. He would forgive all the things she might have to do before she met her death. And if, by the grace of God, she managed to survive, he would forgive that too. The wagon creaked to a halt, and she closed her eye, feigning unconsciousness. The cloth cover whisked aside, and bright sunlight spilled over her. A rough hand grabbed the cord that bound her feet to her hands and used it to drag her out of the wagon. She landed hard on the bright, smooth tiles of the courtyard like a sack of turnips, and her breath whooshed out of her. She gasped and coughed in pain. "'So the infidel harlot is awake, I see.' She recognized the man's voice. "'Playing dead will not serve you here. We can make the dead speak.' He dragged her around the wagon by the cord, arching her legs and back even further. If her body had not been so flexible, it would have been agonizing. Her forehead and cheek felt crusted and thick. Her left eye must have been caked shut with dried blood. He dragged her unceremoniously up a broad expanse of marble steps, her side thudding heavily into each one, and into a massive stone temple, where he deposited her through a side door behind a row of towering fluted pillars— a woman came to meet them, a middle-aged blonde woman, with her hair pulled into a tight straw-colored bun. They exchanged words in Farthy. Then he turned and left her there on the floor. More ropes were tied to her hands, and a noose slipped around her neck. But her feet were freed. The gag was removed and the horrid-tasting cloth withdrawn. She lay there on the floor, gasping and coughing, waiting for sensation to return to her feet. "'Get up,' the woman said. "'If you try anything, it will go the worse for you.' Her accent was perfect Cuscan, perhaps from the lands of House Carrigan. "'Who are you?' Sasha said, her voice little more than a parched croak. The rag had soaked all the moisture from her mouth. "'What is a Cuscan woman doing in this place?' "'Silence!' "'Are you helping them?' "'I said silence!' The woman struck Sasha a tremendous slap across the face. Her legs still wobbly, Sasha fell. "'The old 
bitch was strong. Sasha's ear rang, and the side of her face seared with pain. Get up now, or you'll regret it. Sasha heaved herself onto her knees and stood up. With Sasha's noose in one hand and a coiled leather scourge in the other, the woman jerked on the noose and pulled Sasha through a maze of linen curtains, furnished with dozens of lush silken cushions and divans. Sasha followed along, docile, timid as a teal, but measuring her breathing, gathering her strength. They approached a row of small cells. The woman pulled her toward the nearest cell door. Nearby, sitting on a bright green-cushioned divan, was a young, brown-haired, skinny girl, wearing a simple white linen shift and a golden chain between her wrists. Sasha knew that face because it bore similar features of another face she knew so well. "'Bella?' the girl gasped. "'I said silence!' the woman shrieked. The wooden handle of the scourge lashed out and clouted Sasha across the cheek. A blaze of fresh pain tore through her face and thundered through her already throbbing head, but with the pain came blazing rage. This bitch had no idea who she was dealing with. Sasha roared and threw herself at the woman. The noose jerked tight around her neck and cut off her air, but she did not need any more air. She was going to die, and she was going to take this harpy with her. Her shoulder plowed into the woman's midriff and slammed her up against the stone wall. Sasha straightened herself and smashed her already tender forehead into the bridge of the woman's nose. The woman yowled with pain and outrage and burgeoning fear. Sasha smashed her nose again, this time so hard that the woman's skull cracked hard up against the stone wall. Sasha plowed her knee into the woman's belly. Breath and blood exploded out of the woman's face as she doubled over. Sasha brought the hard point of her knee up again and smashed it into the woman's face, driving her head up and back. Her body went limp and collapsed at Sasha's feet. Sasha stood over her, gasping for breath. She turned toward Bella and the other slave girls. Bella! Untie me! Hurry! The girl beside Bella cowered away and said in a Cardathian accent, There's no way out of here! All the doors are locked! All the men have weapons! They'll kill us all! Bella, please! Bella rushed forward and began working at the knots. Who are you? I can't tell you that, not yet. When we're free, you'll know all. What happens when Sira wakes up? Circe was right, we're trapped in here, only the men can let us out. Sira will raise the alarm. Sasha looked down at the woman and the supple, well-worn scourge hanging loose in her limp hand. She glanced around at the terrified slave girls emerging from the maze of hanging linens. They looked down at Sira's body with a mixture of fear, joy, and horror, and in that moment Sasha saw all the mistreatment this woman had heaped upon these helpless girls at the behest of such heinous masters. How many other girls before these had come and gone? She raised her foot and brought the hard wooden heel of her shoe down like an axe on Sira's temple. Bone crunched. Sira's body began to spasm and convulse like a limp, shaken doll. The slave girls stared. Some of them reeled away and retched. Some of them had seen enough horror that Sira's death affected them not at all. Mercifully, Nanan, who are you? Bella whispered. Just call me Sasha. A series of massive blows hammered against a distant door. That's the call, Seer sobbed. They'll expect Sira to come. Bella untied the last knot, and the bonds around Sasha's wrist came loose. There, you're free. Thank you. Sasha tried to flex some feeling back into her hands, but it would not come back just yet. She had enough dexterity, however, to pry apart the thick crust of dried blood over her left eye. She blinked, able to see again with both eyes. They'll kill us, Seer cried. How do we get out of here? Sasha asked the throng of young girls standing around her. They looked at each other uncertainly, then at Sasha, and shook their heads. 
You don't know what they'll do to us, Circe sobbed. They cut off heads and made them talk. Bella's eyes flicked back and forth as her mind cast about for an answer. The blows on the door sounded again, more insistent. The bathhouse! We can climb through the windows, Bella cried. Sasha took Bella's hand. Then let's go. Bella ran toward a back corner of the room and into a long, dark hallway. The girl's pace was terrifically slow, even for Sasha's battered state, but they finally emerged into a bright, airy bathhouse. Sasha took one look at the tiny windows near the ceiling, and her heart fell. I can't fit through there, Bella. Yes, you can. We have to try. I don't want you to die, too. Footsteps were coming down the hallway, heavy footsteps. Bella began to sob. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's all right. Don't be afraid. Get behind me. Six men poured into the room. The sheens of their long, wickedly curved daggers glinted in the sunlight. Their faces were dark and grim and without malice. All she saw in their eyes was the surety of her own death. Don't be afraid, Bella. Tears streamed down Bella's face. No, not again. Not again. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Sasha charged. She did not need a weapon. She would simply take one of theirs. She closed with the nearest man, snatching his knife wrist, but as if he had expected it and knew how to counter such a move, he snapped loose of her hold and drove her back with a back-fisted blow across the face. She felt the others closing in behind her for only an instant before another blow landed across the back of her skull, and she fell into darkness once more. Thank you for listening to Rogues of the Black Fury by Travis Heerman. If you enjoy the story, don't be shy. Let me know. I would love to hear from you. And don't forget to go to this podcast's homepage and click the donate button. Give whatever you like, but is $4.99 really too much to ask for this many hours of entertainment? Rogues of the Black Fury is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. I encourage you to copy it and give it away to all your roguish friends. Just don't change it or sell it, or the Black Furies will soon be coming after you.